an hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State. From the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany, and the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor, who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say, believe, rise, and join us. Welcome to Radio Free New York. All right, welcome everyone to Radio Free New York. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for longtime listeners of the show will know that like one of the, the interesting issues that I like to dive into that, that, that doesn't usually get talked about in kind of conservative and libertarian circles is urbanism. I live in a city. I live in the city of Rochester. I like talking about and thinking about local government in, in a smart comprehensive way how do we create great strong livable cities and that's why i'm so excited for our guest today so we brought in mr charles marone who is the founder of strong towns and author of a book that i'm really enjoying is a strong towns bottom-up revolution to rebuild american prosperity uh miss marone thank you for joining us hey thanks for having me i i've been to rochester and uh, like it a lot so it's it's great to chat with you yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a it's a great mid-sized city that, you know, I know a lot of people in the listening area sometimes are skeptical of. But, you know, I, I love living here in this area. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see oftentimes how your work is applied to, to activists in the Rochester area. But before we go too much into that, uh, for for listeners who don't know, who are you and, and what is Strong Towns all about? I appreciate that. Well, I, I'm a I'm an engineer and I'm a planner and actually started my career doing engineering, uh, added a, a planning background because I didn't feel like I was a very good engineer. I needed some more planning uh, knowledge to do the kind of work I was doing and, and really intended to do that for my my life. I mean, that I, I enjoyed the work. I, I liked working for cities, doing uh, development projects and roads and sewer extensions and, and planning new developments. It was in doing that work that I started to question the financial implications of it, the, the way that we were building our cities and the projects that I was working on specifically didn't seem to make a lot of financial sense to me. I could see how where the city would make money in the short term, but I also saw how the city was taking on these enormous long-term liabilities. And, and I was working for many cities across Minnesota where I'm, where I'm at. Uh, in 2008, and it seems like such a long time ago now, but it actually was very recent. You know, the economy was crashing down, uh, banks were collapsing, uh, cities were experiencing enormous financial hardships, hardships that would only get worse in the years after that. And you know, the the businesses that I the businesses that I was working on and the cities that I was working for uh, were cutting way way back, and I. I had been telling them for years, like this stuff we're doing doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but everybody wanted to grow, grow, grow. And now all of a sudden they were cutting back. And the first thing they cut back on was the, the consulting engineer, the consulting planner. So my, my business you know, dropped by 80% in a very short period of time. And I found myself very frustrated with life, frustrated with where I was at. 
And I didn't really know what to do. And so as kind of a therapy thing, I sat down, I started to write. And I started to write about what I was seeing going on, uh, why I was seeing our city struggle. And, you know, instead of the approach that we were being given, like, let's invest in more infrastructure, let's build more, let's have the federal government come in and bail us out, uh, what we should be doing instead. That blog uh, started in 2008 has grown into Strong Towns. And you referenced the book. Uh, we, We publish three articles a day. Uh, each weekday, we have three different podcast streams. We're reaching a couple million people a year with our content, all based around this idea of how do we build strong, resilient, financially responsible cities from the bottom up. Yeah, no, that that's excellent, and and that seems like something that everyone can get around, right? Like we we want strong and financially resilient cities. We 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 need to have that, to have functional government, to have the, the, the basic services that we need to be able to build community. So, I mean, why, why have we gotten to this point over time of building cities that maybe don't meet those goals? It's interesting because I think if we freeze the idea today, there's a challenge to the left, political left in our country, because we do focus a lot on financial resiliency, and we focus a lot on you know, making good uh, financial decisions, decisions that have a payoff. And a lot of the irresponsibility financially that we see in cities today, I mean, a lot of the fragility that is being exposed right now uh, in New York and in other states across North America and in our localities are a result of basically fiscal imprudence, you know, not bothering about your budget, not bothering about your long term. And and that is a challenge to the political left. On the other hand, uh, you know, we we talk about cities and oftentimes conservatives, you know, look at cities and and just kind of write them off. You know, these are places that are dominated by progressives and left leaning people. And so, you know, let's just it's a you know, let's just leave them alone and go away and set up our own enclave somewhere else. The reality is that both cities and suburban areas uh, have engaged in the same experiment. It's an experiment that was set up by the federal government during the New Deal, uh, right at, in the decades after World War II. And, and it was a, a bipartisan consensus to create growth and prosperity and essentially a different version of America based on things like investing in infrastructure, investing in highways, uh, subsidizing housing, creating programs that would build single-family homes. Uh, And what you wind up with is a hyper-horizontal growth around cities, while within cities you wind up with this distorted hyper-vertical growth. Both of those distortions are a far diversion from the way cities developed traditionally, which was incrementally over time, Uh, growing up, growing out, and growing incrementally more intense uh, by market feedback. It was really the the feedback of a marketplace raising land values, creating redevelopment pressure, and making a place kind of thicken up into something that I I think today we can think of as like a town or, you know, if you go to a small town, you you see kind of this mix in some places that haven't been completely atrophied. You, You can see this in downtown Rochester and some of the surrounding neighborhoods. Uh, but this is a pattern we walked away from. And we walked away from it because it creates growth. Uh, it, you know, it allows our economy to grow very, very quickly. 
The problem is it creates growth by giving us enormous long-term liabilities. You know, now, now we have this huge area we have to provide police and for fire protection to. Now we have all these roads we have to maintain. We have all these pipes we have to maintain. When you add up all those costs, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, it's ridiculously expensive. And we see cities struggling under the weight of this. Uh, and, and, and the advice they're given then is, we'll grow some more. And the reality is, is when we grow unproductively, when we take on a lot of liabilities for a little bit of growth today, uh, we, we can't help but becoming more and more insolvent, uh, further further bankrupt uh, as time goes on. And, and that's really what we're experiencing on a broad scale in North America. Yeah, and, and I really liked uh, your article series on, on the growth Ponzi scheme too. Um, just kind of this idea like, okay, well, we've built this infrastructure. We can't quite afford it anymore. It's going through its second life cycle. It was uh, funded and subsidized by the federal government or, or some other government. And now this local government's like, all right, how do we, how do we get our way out of this now? We, we, we overbuilt. We can't afford it. We double down, right? We, we, we get more grants. We expand. And if we just grow a little bit more, it's going to be fine next time around. But it that's isn't. A, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, is I recognized this in our cities, uh, you know, way back in the mid 2000s, the, the early 2000s, because of the projects that I was working on. I mean, the, the cities that I worked with were generally smaller and in, in smaller systems, the, 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 the problems kind of bubble up more quickly. There's, there's less slack in the system, so you can't hide this as well. But we see this now in big cities, and in fact, we see this you know, everywhere from the way the Federal Reserve has tried to engineer growth in our macro economy and just stay one step ahead of you know, the collapse, the deflation, uh, by you know, just pumping more money in the system, uh, you know, to, the, to the way every city council is, is, in a ridiculous fashion, handing out subsidies and chasing that new growth while you know there's potholes in the existing streets and the existing infrastructure is falling apart and our our taxes are going up and, and no one can really explain how doing more and more and more of what got us to this point is actually going to get us out of it. Uh, it it's it's almost like a human pathological thing, uh, and and I actually do think that uh, you know sociology or, or human psychology actually is more informative on this than economics because. You know, go back to Popeye. You know, Wimpy will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Uh, that's a very human uh, kind of instinct. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of wired that way as, as human beings. This is why people smoke. It's why people, uh, you know, don't uh, go to the gym and exercise, but instead eat fatty foods. Uh, we're a little bit wired this way. And when we collectively create an economic system that is designed to exploit that human flaw, uh, as opposed to, you know, push back on it and try to correct it the way we do in groups and, and, and as individuals, uh, we wind up with the financial catastrophe we have today. Yeah. And, and I want to dig a little bit more into that, too. We're, we're coming up on a break now, uh, but, you know, I want to dig more into, like, what are the, the political incentives and motivations to, to make that happen? Uh, you, I want to talk about the, the idea of the infrastructure cult and, and maybe we'll, we'll start to move towards how do we how do we think our way out of this? But thanks again for listening to Radio Free New York, folks. Uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes.
You're listening to Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. We're live noon to one here on WISL. If you want to participate in this conversation, you have a question for Mr. Charles Marone, uh, give us a call, 585-346-3000. And also, shout out to those listening down the line at WACK in Newark and WENY, the Patriot, down in the Southern Tier. And, of course, all of our friends who are listening online on YouTube, on Facebook. You guys are wonderful. Leave your comments in any of our streams, I'm looking at them, I'm seeing them. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to have you participate in this discussion. Now, uh, we, we were talking before the break kind of uh, you know, uh, about how we, we got to where we are. And, you know, w- one, one of the, the interesting concepts of your book and, the, and something that I think we kind of hinted at is like there, there's a lot of this incentive for instant gratification with the infrastructure that we have now. People like seeing new roads. People like seeing new housing developments that go up sometimes in the middle of nowhere, even though it requires gas lines, water lines, electric lines, all that stuff to go out to that too that needs to be maintained and updated decades from now. People like seeing that stuff. So with that type of mentality, with, with the mentality of it, of politicians liking to do ribbon cuttings, of people liking to see those things, with, with all the political incentives we have, how do we, how do we think our way out of this and start to, to think in a, in a different manner that might be more uh, financially sustainable. The, the subtitle of the book is a bottom up revolution. And, and I really do believe that we are not going to get uh, that kind of leadership from the federal government for sure. And, and, and not likely from the state government as well, because as you say, the, you know, the incentives to uh, deal with the thing in front of you and ignore the long-term consequences of that are really overwhelming. And, you know, we, we have demonstrated, you know, the United States in our affluence, in our power, in our, our wealth over the last, you know, two, three generations has demonstrated that when we face a problem and there's two ways to go, one way is to throw money at it. Uh, the other way is to actually deal with it and make some difficult structural changes that it's, it's easier and more palatable as a society to throw money at it. And, and we can blame politicians for that. And I think that, you know, certainly politicians know how to speak to us in ways we want to hear. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, this is something that we have asked for. Um, we've asked for these roads. We've asked for this infrastructure. We've asked for this, this building style. Um, you know, we've asked for the strip malls and the big box stores and the franchise restaurants and the frontage roads. And, you know, we, this is something that they've provided to us because we've, you know, given the thumbs up when they've done it. I think what we are quickly reaching, and it's not hard to see or to understand, is a point in time when not only can the federal government not sustain this, I mean, in New York, you're having conversations over pension funds and who should pay for these and whether it be a federal bailout or not. Uh, in the cities in your listening area, we're seeing, you know, large budget gaps for next year because of the coronavirus fallout and the shifts in uh, spending and what have you. And, you know, will there be a federal bailout? Let's pretend there are federal bailouts for the short term. I I think the idea of fixing the trillions and trillions of dollars of local infrastructure on top of the trillions of dollars of national infrastructure that we have, it's just not a long-term proposition. 
And so we're going to have to sustain this stuff on our own. And we don't have the money to do it. And not only do we not have the money to, we don't have the wealth to tap to do it. Even if we wanted to 100% tax ourselves, which is an absurd thing, but even if we wanted to do that, we couldn't pay for this stuff. And so ultimately, we are going to have to, at the local level, come to grips with what we've done. And I think at that point, there's going to be a lot of anger at politicians and a lot of frustration with the people of the past. Um, but, you know, that anger and frustration isn't going to change the reality that we're going to have to deal with this. You know, if we want that road maintained, we have to pay for it. If we want that pipe fixed, that money is going to have to come from us. And, and I don't know where that money is, and, and I don't think we're ever going to have it. Yeah, I mean, when, when we're, we're looking at, like, we're staring down the barrel of that stuff here, you know. I, you know, I think there's, there's two interesting things that you've said here. One is that the preference for most people is to to have this kind of, uh, in theory, everlasting growth, right? People like the strip malls. People like the expansive suburbs. People like all this stuff, and and we've kind of provided that over the years. So, you know, my two questions are to one, you know, why why shouldn't people get that, right? And is there a way to make people pay for it? Because I always think like, okay, you know, if we're subsidizing these things, like, is is this something that's realistic and sustainable in market conditions? And two, you know. Are you suggesting that like we should just let certain aspects of our infrastructure fail? Is that what we have to do? Yeah. Let me give you an analogy. Um, if, if we pretended that we were in the 1950s or 1960s and Tesla was a company back then, wh why would you buy Tesla stock? You would buy Tesla stock because you thought it was a good company that made good products, that its earnings potential, uh, not only currently the dividends that it was paying, but the earnings that it had, uh, we're, we're going to justify the stock price. And, and you would buy that assuming that those earnings would continue to rise and, and you would see uh, that in terms of like the dividends you were going to receive. Why would you pay $1,700 a share for Tesla today? Tesla is valued at, you know, more than GM, more than Ford to it together. Uh, you know, it's, it's fast approaching more than Toyota and Honda added onto that. The only reason you buy Tesla at $1,700 a share today is because you believe someone will buy it at $2,000 a share a month from now or two months from now. That's the difference between an investment and essentially a, a speculation. When we look at our cities, when we look at our neighborhoods, the homes we buy, the neighborhoods we build into, there's always a sense that even if this doesn't work out in a broad case, that I will be able to sell my property. I will be able to move to a better neighborhood. I will be able to essentially get out of this problem before it manifests. And I think a lot like the people who own Tesla stock who believe, you know, I don't care what the valuation, the underlying realities are. I just think this will go up. I think we're deluding ourselves at the local level. Will we give up some of these neighborhoods? Yeah. Uh, you know, as hard as it may sound, we can go to a place like Detroit, which, you know, as I explain in, in chapter uh, two of the book, is basically just, you know, a, a, a generation ahead of everybody else. Uh, you can look at a city like Detroit and have they walked away from their sewer and water systems? Yeah. Have they walked away from roads? Yeah. Have they, have they walked away from entire neighborhoods? Absolutely. When you don't have the money to maintain it, uh, you don't maintain it. And Rochester today and, and, and Utica and Syracuse and, you know, cities all over upstate New York have deferred maintenance, critical, urgent maintenance for decades. And, and you know, those 
promises we think will be kept at some point. Like, okay, they might not fix my road this year. They might put off this upgrade for five years, but they'll eventually get to it. At some point, we're going to recognize that they're just not going to get to it. And Hmm. that changes everything. It changes everything about how you look at your city. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a frightening prospect for a lot of people. And and I think from just kind of a, a political incentive. If, if you're you're a politician on a town board, county board, or or state assembly person, or any level of government, really, you, your your inclination is, we can't let that happen. That is, you know, the death of my political career. If we start to see infrastructure failing, so they'll scramble and do whatever they can to continue doubling down on this investment. Right, but let's let's go down to New York City. Um, which, you know, really as a per acre or per square foot basis is the highest concentration of wealth in North America. I mean, this is one of the wealthiest cities in the world. You've ridden their subways, right? I mean, yeah. you've seen, you know, the, the, the state of disrepair of much of their infrastructure systems. Uh, we will live with a long, slow decline for a long time before we make any difficult choices. Uh, even in a place of enormous wealth, you know, where, where, where ostensibly you have, you know, this progressive ethic that will invest the money and will put the money in place to do this. I think you go to some of our smaller towns, you go to some of our mid-sized cities where you don't have that wealth, you don't have that capacity, and you proportionally actually have more public investment, you know, as, as a proportion of your wealth. I don't think we make those decisions at all. I I think we do experience that decline. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll see if we can uh, shift to a more optimistic note after the break. (laughs) But thank you so much, uh, uh, Charles Marone, for joining us today here on Radio Free New York. We'll be back in just a few minutes. listening to Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone, who is listening again on WYSL. And if you want to participate in this conversation, we're live here until 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Give us a call, 585-346-3000. And thank you, folks, for listening online, too, for contributing. We, uh, Craig says, I love Strong Towns and Chuck. And Evan says, a proud Rochester-based Strong Towns member here listening. And uh, Stephen says hi as well. So thank you, everyone listening. Thank you, everyone who is uh, sharing this post. Um, really appreciate you contributing to the conversation. But leave your comments. Ask you know, you, you got you got Charles Marone on. You know, let ask uh, ask some questions, and I'll and I'll get to one of the questions I got earlier this week. But just after our doom and gloom conversation, again, how do we? how do we figure our way out of this? Right? Like, so maybe, maybe some of this stuff has to fail, but like, what's next? What's the solution? Well, I think at the end of the day, the dollars and cents are going to drive this. I mean, we need to make better investments in our communities. Uh, and, and by better investments, what I really mean is that an investment where we spend a dollar as a community, you know, collectively we spend a dollar and we get back more than a dollar. 
you know, we get back something greater than that over the long term. Uh, if we were talking about a business and, you know, I was saying to you, this business is in the red, it's losing lots of money. Uh, and you came to me and said, you know what, Chuck, uh, what we should do is launch a whole nother division and let's borrow a bunch of money and let's put, you know, money into this new division. We would, as shareholders, we'd vote you out. We'd say, that's insane. Like, why would we do that? We actually need to shore up what we do. Uh, we need to take what we do and do it better. We need to, you know, do the small things. For cities, that looks a lot like things like planting street trees, uh, fixing crosswalks, uh, maintaining sidewalks. It looks a lot like fixing your zoning code so that people can make a little bit better use of their property without having you know two years of red tape they have to go through. It, it, it looks like things like allowing a little bit of neighborhood-friendly commercial in neighborhoods where it's not allowed. Uh, you know, th this is a... A, a general platform for change that any city of any scale can do and see immediate results from. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not like a huge budget constraint. Nothing that we need to do right now is going to require us to borrow tons of money. Uh, but it does require us to rethink what it means to have a neighborhood in a city. It doesn't mean having a static place that never changes. It means having a dynamic place that is going to incrementally grow and become more wealthy and more valuable over time. That, that, that's different than what we were sold post-World War II, but it looks a lot more like the traditional city, particularly when you think of a place like Rochester in its heyday, it looks a lot more like that. Yeah. You know, and I, it's interesting because the, the conversations I see in my own neighborhood around some of that stuff. So like, well, first of all, let me back up and say like, it, it sounds like, a lot of what you're saying is we don't need to make big investments in this type of stuff. It's mostly just remove some restrictions and kind of let people do what makes sense in areas, right? Like so, so in my neighborhood, yeah. you know, it's it's mostly single family zoning, which means uh, for those of you who don't know, it, it restricts the buildings that are able to be in our neighborhood to to single family housing. Um, it's very difficult to build multifamily housing or commercial businesses or or mixed use. Uh, things in this area and the city of rochester recently came out with like an, a, a strategic plan that suggested uh an area a couple blocks away from where i live should be allowed to have more kind of mixed use or commercial properties and people flipped, flipped they out. did yeah. not like it not yeah. at all well uh, let me let me defend those people for a second as, as a way to you know i i disagree with them but let me defend them a little bit um, right now, today in America, if you say loosen zoning restrictions or change some of those things, what people automatically think of is the large capital flow into the community. And so you have a choice between single family homes or multi-story apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. You have a choice between, uh, you know, a single family home or a gas station or a strip mall. The, one of the problems with the suburban experiment, you know, the way we've been building since World War II is that it only comes in these two sizes. You know, it comes in the very hyper individual horizontal kind of growth, or it comes in these discrete units where large capital is pumped into them and they just are not compatible with our neighborhood. Here's what I would suggest people do. Go walk around to the older parts of your city and in, in upstate New York and around, you know, New York, you have all kinds of examples of great cities that were built prior to the Great Depression. Go walk around some of these neighborhoods and, and look at the form 
What you will see if you look closely is that not only do you have single family homes, but you have homes that look the same, look basically like single family that sometimes have two, three, four families in them. Uh, sometimes they have, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, architect studio in the front or an accountant's office. Sometimes they might have a doctor's office or a dentist's office. Uh, sometimes they might have a, a little, you know, bodega kind of retail store in the front. These things were very, very common in historic development patterns in, you know, the traditional way that your city's built. When we allow those things to come back, what we see is that underlying land values start to increase and it actually drives a reinvestment. It actually drives a natural like reinforcing wealth loop that makes these neighborhoods a better place to invest in. Uh, it makes them more prosperous and successful. It, it actually makes that wealth kind of distributed more broadly across your community uh, and it drives other investment. Uh, there's a there's a little town in upstate New York called Oswego, uh, and I'm, I may be saying that wrong. I've been Oswego? there a couple times. Yeah, Oswego. Okay, uh, that's how a New Yorker would say it. A, a Minnesotan might say Oswego. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you go there, you know they have a historic Renaissance group. I write about them in chapter eight of the book. Uh, they have taken small amounts of private money, and they've used that small amount of private money to encourage basically incremental investment within their residential neighborhoods and seeing millions and millions of dollars of return from it. This is all private sector. It's not government stuff, um, but it's people living in these kind of traditional neighborhoods, allowing them to organically flex and grow and seeing enormous wealth for themselves and for the community simultaneously occur. That's excellent. Now, it sounds like we've got a caller, uh, John from Rochester. John, what's on your mind? Hey, Kevin. Hey, Chuck. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, been in downtown Rochester as a, as a worker, and I own my own company now, but uh, since 1973, and I really enjoy, I've seen big transition from 1973 to the, the present in housing downtown, both you know, apartments, loft apartments, and also townhouses. It's quite a dramatic, dramatic change and a good change. Uh, and the, the cool thing is, I live in the suburbs. I'm within 15, 20 minutes away. I've got a creek in my yard. So I get to uh, experience the best of both worlds, the urban. And I, I work a lot, so I'm downtown probably seven days a week. Uh, and I enjoy the downtown atmosphere, but it's great to get, get away out in the suburbs where you got trees and you got the creek and, you know, that type of thing. It's a perfect thing. The thing, question I have for you, Chuck, is with this latest uh, controversy we have and uh, problems we have with the COVID outbreaks, and now we've got the uh, rioters that are including uh, and whatever, even in downtown Rochester, I guess we may have something developed Monday. Uh, have you changed your line of thinking a little bit regarding uh, downtown versus suburban development just based upon the safety issue. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks for your question, John. I really, uh, we appreciate it. So, uh, Chuck, to, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, particularly in response to the, the coronavirus, we're seeing a lot of people now who are they're nervous about living in close proximity to a lot of folks. And, you know, they now have options. Everyone's doing a remote commute now. I'm doing remote commute. Uh, I, I don't have to actually physically go into my job anymore. 
So th does this change the nature of living in cities? And, you know, what, what about folks like John who, who want to live out in the suburb, have that, that natural area and just commute in? Is that, is that okay? Is that sustainable? Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because I think in an American context, we have a lot to work out here. We have a lot to work out. And I'm, I'm going to say some things, and I, I don't want – I don't say these things to be controversial or, or pejorative. Um, but let me give you – let's look over across the pond at European cities for a second and understand that the, your typical European city is going to have people that are liberal, progressive – in their mindset and people who would be considered conservative in their mindset. When you look at these dispositions, they're kind of not opposition dispositions as much as they are like yin and yang. Uh, they kind of need each other. They kind of go together. Uh, you know, conservatives are very good and very sensitive to uh, how, how fragile cities can be, how fragile places can be, how disorder and chaos actually sows its own seeds and reinforces itself. And when you have conservatives in your conversation, you tend to have uh, a lot of respect for not only tradition and, and hierarchy, but also just, you know, a, a kind of dedication to order and, and keeping things running. The progressive instinct is not the opposite of that. Like I said, it's a yin and yang. It is uh, an examination of, you know, where these hierarchies and where these approaches become despotic, where they go too far, where they... Uh, create, you know, negative circumstances that, that impact people in ways that are unjust. I, I feel like the more we allow cities to merely be the domain of the progressive and the progressive mindset, uh, the, the more we get cities that are increasingly dysfunctional. And, and I don't say that because I think liberals are bad or liberals should be driven out of cities um, but a lot of the things that we see in cities today are not the results of a lack of wealth or a lack of uh, capacity, um, but they're really about something else. And yeah, I, I think the reaction of many people would be, well, if I don't have to live there, I'm not going to, I'm going to move out. I, I think that our cities need to do a better job of managing and running themselves because quite frankly, Paris today, uh, Rome today, I mean, these are places that have had huge amounts of coronavirus. They're very safe, wonderful places to be. American cities are not. All right. Well, we'll get more into that, too, uh, and answer a few more of your questions here on Radio Free New York. And we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host today, joined by Mr. Charles Marone from Strong Towns. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you, everyone, for the questions that have started coming in uh, since the last segment. Uh, but I do want to wrap up uh, some of the discussion from, from John's question from last segment. And, and just to say that it is interesting to see that European cities and, and other cities across the world seem to have responded to coronavirus effectively in a way that American cities haven't. But we are seeing some shifts in how people use public space to try to do that. And, you know, and I did, I include this in my original pitch to, to try to get you on the show, but, you know, the city of Rochester is doing a thing where we're uh, taking out parking spaces in some areas and expanding that in the dining space and, and opening or closing off some streets to, to make them pedestrian only spaces. Are, are these the type of like kind of small bets and changes that, that you're looking at at, at strong towns to kind of, rethink public space and, and rethink uh, 
uh, city life? Yes, I, I mean without a doubt. And, and let me ju- let me just say this: the most expensive thing that we do in the core of our cities is to use space for parking. You know, parking is very expensive to build and maintain, and it generally produces little to no revenue. I mean, if it revenue, if you have parking fees, if they cover the expenses of actually sustaining. Uh, you know the the enforcement mechanism. You're you're doing better than most cities, and so parking is a net loss because you don't have the place, you don't have tax base. You're you're giving up wealth that you could otherwise build and use uh, just to store a vehicle. Um, this is ridiculously expensive. So anything we can do to start incrementally shifting over to a pattern of development that is less reliant on people driving everywhere and actually gives more options for people to get around without an automobile, you're creating uh, you know, financial windfalls for yourself. Uh, that, is, that is the truth of our core you know, development pattern. So yeah, things like outdoor seating, outdoor marketplaces, converting parking into uh, restaurant space, uh, or even retail space, th- these are advancements that, you know, if we want to look across at European cities, uh, they would look at us silly because, you know, they've, they've been doing this for decades. Uh, we're now just figuring it out, and it's kind of becoming a fad in some places. But these are generally good moves, yes. Yeah. And, you know, and I just on the flip side of that, too, I've seen businesses get uh, not approved to open. They've been, in some cases, unable to expand because they weren't able to meet the minimum parking requirements. And it's so frustrating to see that, like, oh, this this was a cool coffee shop that's supposed to come to my neighborhood, and they can't now because they, they can't knock out a building to build, you know, however many parking spaces they right. need. It's ridiculous. And understand, you know, parking in that sense, what you're saying, what the business is saying is we want more space for more patrons. And what is the pushback is, is that we need more places to park then because we don't want to inconvenience anyone who's currently parking in this area. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and actually, uh, what you're saying then is that I want higher taxes, I want lower services. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it might cut out there for a second. But I did want to segue into to another question. I, I think it, it transitions well is, is uh, Adrian from the, the Rochester Urbanist Groups is asking about, you know, how do, how do cities uh, deal with, like, transportation issues as it relates to being a snowy city? Rochester is one of the snowiest, snowiest cities uh, in the U.S., you know, everyone likes to having a nice warm car and getting around and being nice and close to places. So how do we, how do we uh, address those issues? Jeez, I don't know. I mean, what do you think the peak year for Rochester was? You know, if we look back in history and we say, when, when was Rochester at its apex? Uh, that was way before people were driving around in automobiles. You know, I, 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 I live in the central part of Minnesota. It gets very, very cold here. And I hear the same thing. You know where else I hear it? Louisiana, they say it's too hot here to, to walk. It's too hot here to have cars, to not, you know, to not drive everywhere. Uh, I think that we have a recency bias. And the reality is, is people for centuries got around in deep snow. They got around in cold. They got around in hot. And they did it just fine. It's difficult in the layout we have today. But like I said, that layout is under challenge. It's under duress. We're going to be giving up parts of that. And so I, I think the idea of making like marginal improvements to make our places more walkable and having more people who would walk instead of drive 
is not something we should fear because, oh my gosh, I don't want to drive every, or I don't want to walk everywhere. That's fine. But you know what? There's a lot of people who do, and they're going to drive that market revolution. Now, many of the, the, the listeners in our, in our listening area, they live in some of these small towns. Can that work there too, or does it only work in big cities? It works even better in small towns, quite frankly. I mean, really, small towns have an urgency that big cities don't because there's less slack in the system. Uh, small towns need to be thinking about this as, as, a, as an urgent imperative uh, because, you know, the, the big cities are going to walk away from them. And the smaller you are, the more dependent you are on those state and federal subsidies that I think are going to be in limited supply in the coming years. Yeah, and I think we might have time for, like, one more question. Yeah, Eric Cooper says, you know, when you remake – when you make reforms to become a strong town, you know, will it result in dramatic growth? And, uh, you know, you, you talked a lot about incremental growth. You know, how do you, how do you relieve development pressure into incrementalism? So like the developments I, you know, and I, I get, I, I, I got a question sort of like this the other day too, who they're like, you know, the, the incentives are all the, the build big, you know, how do we change those incentives where people are willing to, to kind of make those smaller bets, those incremental changes to, Let's uh, be clear. Uh, incremental does not mean small. Uh, and it doesn't mean, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean slow. It just means by many hands. And so, you know, Rochester grew very robustly. You know, the cities in upstate New York grew very robustly during a period of time. But it was all incremental growth. It was done by many hands over a broad area. Uh, what we do now is we say only large players get to grow in our cities, get to make investments. And those investments are all going to be big. I would like to see a thousand, you know, incremental investments as opposed to, you know, a dozen big investments. That that's the difference. It's not a matter of not being able to meet demand. In fact, I think you meet demand even better working incrementally. Fantastic. So not the big massive projects, but a lot of small stuff going on. That's growth. That's still going to be substantial and it's going to be more resilient and stable over time. Without a doubt. Yes. Fantastic. Now we only got like minute and a half left. So, uh, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about Strong Towns? Our, our website's strongtowns.org. And like I said, we publish three articles a day and got multiple podcast streams. If you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're in all these places. And, you know, have a very robust conversation going on there. Welcome anyone to join in and, and be part of that. Uh, we just, you know, are, are, very, are trying to have this conversation and trying to have people share this information. And so plug in wherever is convenient for you. We'll be there. Yeah. Excellent. And you know, for those listening to the station, you know, I, I've been following this for a while, the conservatives, liberals, progressives, everyone's kind of like going together. And how do we, how do we have conversations about building better cities, building better towns, building, you know, financially sustainable and resilient infrastructure. And I think that we all need to be a part of that. So Chuck Marone, thank you so much for being here today on radio for New York. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. All right. We'll be back Monday. Talk to you next week.